You know, leading up to today, I had it in my mind that I was just going to deliver my normal Easter message. But the more this day approached, the more that that seemed like a really inappropriate idea. And the reason I say that is because this is not a normal Easter. Uh, a couple of days ago, I was, I was talking with my son. He's five years old. And I was asking him what his favorite holiday was. And uh, he actually told me Easter. And I don't know if it actually is his favorite holiday or if he just said that because it's the closest one to us. But I asked him why he liked Easter so much. And he was talking to me about Easter egg hunts and playing around with his friends and uh, with his, his cousins and all that. And as soon as he told me that, I was immediately filled with a certain sadness because I knew that none of that was going to happen for him this year. Uh, every, every year on Easter Sunday after church, we have this huge gathering with a lot of friends and a lot of family, uh, and it's a lot of fun, and uh, we're not able to do that this year. And uh, I don't know if you had any plans for Easter, but I do know that if you did, there's a really good chance that they got changed or canceled altogether. And if that fills you with a certain sadness, um, well, first and foremost, I know you're not alone. Uh, I know that that's where a lot of people are. As, as a matter of fact, I wanted to read a quote to you from the Surgeon General, Jerome Adams. At the beginning of this week, he said, and I quote, This is going to be the hardest and saddest week of most Americans' lives. This is going to be our Pearl Harbor moment, our 9-11 moment, only it's not going to be localized. It's going to be happening all over the country, and I want America to understand that. So I guess what I'm trying to say is something that you already know. It's that this is not a normal Easter. And actually, the more that I thought about that, the more that I really believe that that's okay. Because this, this situation that we find ourselves in, the situation that the coronavirus has, has placed us in and really forced us in, I think... What's happened is we've been placed in a position to understand what that very first Easter was like in ways that would never otherwise be possible, in deeper and in more meaningful ways. Because let's face it, uh, the first Easter was not exactly ideal. As a matter of fact, and maybe you've never thought about it this way, but that first Easter came at what was almost definitely the worst time of their lives for Jesus' disciples and closest friends. Because leading up to the event that we call Easter, I mean, for three, three and a half years, they had allowed themselves to believe the impossible, the unthinkable, that God had actually come down here as a person, that the Savior, the Messiah, who was the Lord, had arrived, and he was going to you know, liberate us and, and, and change everything and fix everything and heal everything. And so when they got to Jerusalem and they saw things go the way they went with Jesus, hanging on a Roman cross and dying, uh, that was easily the worst moment of their lives. Because from their perspective, it wasn't just their friend on that cross. It wasn't just their rabbi, their mentor, some inspiring figure. That was their hope that they watched die. And so on that very first Easter, you know, those first followers of Jesus had their expectations totally shattered. They found themselves in a place that they didn't want to be, um, they had a lot of fear for what was waiting for them in the days, weeks, months ahead. And they were really struggling to see God's hand in this, if God was moving in this at all. And, and so I just can't help but find a great deal of significance in the Surgeon General's words. You know, saying specifically that this very week would be so hard and so sad 
for so many because that's right where those first disciples were on that very first Easter. And, and so I say all this to say, if there's an undercurrent of sadness in your life right now, or fear, or, or even anger, then the good news that I have uh, is that you're right where those people found themselves on that very first Easter. And not only does the situation that we find ourselves in, not only does it not take away from the message of Easter, I, I really do believe that it just puts us in a position to understand it even more deeply. So what I'd like to do this morning is, is take us to the moment, the moment right after Jesus had died on the cross and all hope had seen lo- seemed lost. And I want to try to get us to see that first unexpected Easter uh, through the eyes of the people who were there in the hopes that we can really understand what this message was really always supposed to be about. So to do that, I'm going to pick up the story in Matthew chapter 27, verses 57 through 60, which say this. When it was evening... A rich man from Arimathea named Joseph came, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Then Pilate ordered that it be released. So Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean, fine linen, and placed it in his new tomb, which he'd cut into the rock. He left after rolling a great stone against the entrance of the tomb. So what you're reading in those verses is that the body of Jesus just after the crucifixion was given to a man named Joseph of Arimathea. But the detail that stands out to me the most in this picture of the burial of Jesus is the fact that we are specifically told that the tomb that Jesus was laid in belonged to someone else. Now, whenever I see details in, in, in the Bible, it just always makes me ask the question why. It's just the way that I'm wired, because I don't believe that any detail of anything that God has done uh, was not carefully thought out and executed for a specific reason. And, and so what we're seeing here is that Jesus, even in death, literally took the place of another man by laying in his tomb. And what that shows us about Jesus is, is, is not only our first idea today, it's an idea that is so vital in making sure that we understand what the message of Easter really is. It's this. First and foremost, Jesus came to take our place. See, this picture right here of Jesus shows us not only what makes Christianity so unique, but specifically what makes the person of Jesus so unique. Specifically when you hold him up alongside all the other founders of of every other major belief system. Um, Right at the beginning of the story of the Bible, If I can just backtrack a little bit here real briefly. We're shown, right at the beginning of the Bible, we're shown that there is a problem that that we have no solution for. And that is, very simply, that sin has fractured our relationship with God. And so all throughout the Old Testament, what we see is God uh, offering people his law and even setting up the sacrificial system to make up for all the failures that we have in trying to keep his law. But the Old Testament ends really just reminding us over and over and over again of this one Uh, really painful reality, and and it's something that, that, believe it or not, the Bible says you know, even if nobody ever tells it to you. It's that we are powerless to fix what sin has broken. The Bible actually teaches, and this might be a strange thing for, for some of you to think about, but the Bible actually teaches that even if you wouldn't consider yourself a religious person, even if you've never opened a Bible, never stepped foot in church, even if you're not even sure whether or not you believe in God, 
The Bible teaches that, that one of the things that we all have in common is we all have this innate sense of our own condemnation. Meaning without ever needing to be told, every single one of us knows deep within the core of who we are that there is a standard that we have failed to live up to because Scripture says God has written the law on our hearts. And that's really the truth that the Old Testament leaves us off with. And it's into that reality that Jesus came down here. But, but what I think a lot of times people miss, especially uh, you know, from the outside of the church looking in, what a lot of people tend to miss about Jesus is that Jesus did not come down here primarily to be an inspirational figure. He did not come down here primarily uh, just to be a, a great teacher or some wise mentor. Jesus came down here to be something that no other founder of any other major religion ever dared claim to be, and that is your and my substitute. In other words, Jesus did not come down here to put us in our place and tell us what we need to do. What Jesus came down here uh, to do was stand in our place and do what we could never do. And that's really what the gospel is. The gospel is not good advice about what we need to do for God. It's good news about what God has done for us through Jesus. And what we see is that Jesus has lived the perfect life that at least a part of us knows We have not lived and could never live, but at the end of Jesus' life, he died, not for his sins, but for yours and for mine. In other words, Jesus came to take our place. It's exactly what he literally physically did in the tomb for Joseph of Arimathea, and it's a picture of what he's willing to do for absolutely anybody who will put their trust in him. You know, recently I read this story about a man named Donald Gray Barnhouse, He was born in the late 1800s, and he served as the minister of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And while he was serving there, his wife, who was only in her late 30s, died of cancer and left him with four children who were under the age of 12, which is something that I literally can't even wrap my head around. But while Donald was driving to his young wife's funeral with all of his children in the car, Uh, there was this large truck that passed them on the left-hand side. Uh, And it it was large enough that it cast a shadow over the entire vehicle. And, And when it did, Donald asked his kids a question. He said, he said, would you rather be run over by the truck or by the shadow of the truck? And one of his sons answered back, well, the shadow, obviously. And, And Donald responded to his son. He said, well, that's exactly what has happened to your mom that only the shadow of death has passed over her because death itself ran in to Jesus. And the reason that he could have that kind of hope, even on the way to a funeral, where that kind of tragedy became a part of him and his children's lives, the reason that he had that kind of buoyancy is because he understood exactly what the picture of Jesus' burial is trying to get us to understand, that Jesus came to take our place. But that's not all that Jesus came to do. And this brings us right to the morning of the very first Easter. I'm in Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 8, but I want to begin just by reading verse 1. It says, After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. Now, before we move on from verse 1, I think it's really important uh, to understand the picture that this scene paints, because it is, in no uncertain terms, this is the picture of utter hopelessness. Because first off, when these two women 
approached the tomb of Jesus, uh, they, they, were, they were faced with obstacles that they were absolutely powerless to overcome. Right, because first and foremost, this tomb, we know, was guarded by Roman soldiers. Roman soldiers were known for how deadly they were. And Rome itself was known for their military might. And so obviously these two women have no possible way of getting past these soldiers to get to this tomb. But even if you took the soldiers away, what we know from this story is that this huge stone had been rolled to cover the mouth of the tomb. So even if they got there, there was no possible way for them to roll this stone away. But what's even more sad to me, and the reason I say that this is such a hopeless scene here, is is the whole reason that they were going to this tomb in the first place. See, if you read the the resurrection account, the Easter morning account in, in Mark and Luke's gospel, they both add a detail that Matthew doesn't touch on here, that these women were carrying spices with them to the tomb. Uh, the, the, the spices that they were carrying with them were the traditional burial spices that were used in their day to anoint a dead body. And that is their only use. And what that proves for us is that these two women, in approaching the tomb that morning, they absolutely had, it, it wasn't anywhere on their radar that, that this could have possibly been anything other than the end of their hope. Right? They came to the tomb that first Easter morning, not looking for a miracle, but looking to mourn. That's what that was for them. They came to say their final goodbyes to a man in whom they had placed all of their hope. And so this was, with every step that they took toward that tomb, I am absolutely confident this was the lowest point in their lives. Because from every angle that they could view this situation from, this was the end. But then in verse 2, we read this word that so often describes the activity of God in this world. Verse 2 begins with the word, suddenly. We see, suddenly there was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his robe was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken from fear of him that they became like dead men. But the angel told the women, don't be afraid because I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has been resurrected just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has been raised from the dead. In fact, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I've told you. Verse 8, so departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. And this brings us to our second idea this morning. It's that Jesus came to give us hope. Right, that's what this whole scene equated to for these two women on that first Easter morning, and it is still so central to what the message of Easter is supposed to be about. You know, there's this story, there's this one story in the Old Testament that almost everybody's familiar with. It's the story of, of David and Goliath. You probably heard something about this before. Uh, David is this young shepherd boy uh, who's totally untrained in the art of war, and his nation, Israel, is being challenged by the Philistines. And, and, and the, the Philistines have this champion on their side, this, this giant named Goliath. And the way that it worked back then is that if the champion of one army could defeat the champion of another army in one-on-one combat, then right there the battle could be decided. Nobody else would have to fight. The entire thing could be settled and, and done with. 
And, and so obviously for, for people in that day, everything depended, everything rode on the strength of your champion. And so Goliath in this story is so positive that Israel cannot produce a champion uh, that can pose any real threat to him, that day after day after day he's walking before the armies of the nation of Israel and he's calling out to them and he's mocking them. And the more that he does this, the more their morale just plummets. And, and, and the picture that that story paints is, is you have all these trained soldiers in the army of the nation of Israel and not a single one of them is willing to stand before this giant because they know how that story is going to go. And so after several days of this, David... This shepherd boy, totally untrained as a soldier, has enough and he decides that he's going to step forward. Only he, he's, he's, he's the most unlikely of heroes. He's so small, they try to put armor on him, it doesn't fit, it's too big, it's too clunky, so he discards that. He doesn't bother going against Goliath with a, a sword or a shield or a spear. He goes against him in a totally unconventional way with just a sling and a stone. And then, of course, the craziest part of the story is that David, in standing before Goliath, he actually kills Goliath. He drops Goliath exactly where he stood. And, and so what that meant that day is that even though not a single soldier from the army of the nation of Israel, had so much as, as lifted a spear or swung a sword, every single one of them got to claim victory and reap the benefits of victory simply because of what their champion had done for them. Now, you can read the story of David and Goliath, and you can zoom out from it and say, okay, so I guess that means that I'm like David. And I'm, I'm the underdog in so many of my life situations. Uh, and I'm an unlikely hero. But if I just have the courage to stand before my giants, then I can see a victory. And, and that's really not what that story is primarily written to communicate to us. What, what the story of David and Goliath, like really everything in the Old Testament, really in the whole Bible, is doing is it's pointing forward to what Jesus came here to do. Specifically what Jesus did on this very first Easter morning. Because just like David... Jesus was the most unlikely of heroes. I mean, Jesus did not come down here as a king. He didn't come down here as a general or a warlord. He was not the picture of strength. He was not the picture of royalty. He was born, laid in a manger, exposed to the elements. He lived a very short life as a rabbi, and he was homeless throughout his ministry, stricken by poverty in his ministry. He was the savior that nobody saw coming, just like David was the hero that nobody saw coming. Right, and, and, and like David, Jesus decided to go to war in a way that was totally unconventional. David went to war with a sling and a stone. Jesus went to war with a cross and a tomb. And, and just like David, on behalf of his people, went toe-to-toe -to -toe with an enemy that none of them had an answer for, so Jesus, on behalf of all of mankind, went toe-to-toe -to -toe with an enemy that none of us had an answer for, named death. But the key difference between David and Jesus is that Jesus did not just fight for us. He died for us and he rose again for us. And the reason that verse 8 tells us that in hearing this news from an angel that these two women ran away from the tomb on that first Easter morning like a couple of schoolgirls with fear and great joy is because they knew what all of this meant. They knew that the resurrection was not just a miracle it was a victory. They knew that what had happened there, that they had just heard that day, is news that all mankind had been waiting for since sin made a mess of everything, that a champion had finally arrived to conquer an enemy that not a single one of us had any answer for named death. And now, 
because that tomb was empty, we can have hope. And at the end of this story, we see what happened after the resurrection, which this particular part of the story, I think because of the situation that we find ourselves in, as I was reading it this week, this next part that I'm about to read you meant more to me right here and right now than never has before. In Matthew 28, verses 9 and 10, it says, Just then Jesus met them and said, <laughs> Good morning, <laughs> which, which I can't help but think is hilarious because if I died and came back to life <laughs> and met people, I don't think good morning would be the first two words out of my mouth. But this was a run-of-the-mill thing for Jesus because this is exactly what he came here to do. This didn't surprise him at all. This is what he, he knew that his story was going to end this way. So he says, good morning. It says, they came up, they took hold of his feet, and they worshiped him. And then Jesus told them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. And what this shows us about Jesus is the last idea I wanted to offer you this morning. And for some of us, maybe it's the most important idea that we can really begin to understand. It's thirdly and lastly that Jesus is available to us. You know, I mentioned that, that this particular aspect of the story meant more to me in the situation that, that I find myself in right now and, and you find yourself in right now, specifically because of the coronavirus. It means more to me than it ever has before. And I'll, I'll just share some, some thoughts, kind of what I mean when I say that. I, I've been reflecting a lot on the impact that the coronavirus is having on our culture, for the good and the bad. Uh, I've thought a lot about what it's taking from us but I've also thought a lot about what it's giving to us. And, and one of the things that I know God is doing in me through the coronavirus, one of the ways that he's bringing good out of how bad this situation is, is it's causing me, and I believe it's causing a whole lot of people, to have a renewed sense of exactly how valuable relationships are. I think that's a gift that all of us can say to one degree or another. We took for granted before this that maybe we're realizing are a whole lot more precious than we realized. And the reason I say that is because, you know, the last several days as weather has permitted, uh, I've, been, I've been taking walks with my kids. We have this park pretty close to our house, and, and so we kind of have this trail that we walk. And, um, and one of the things that I've noticed that I've never seen before, it's like the whole neighborhood has come alive. I have never seen this many people outside on a nice day. And, uh, and it's not just that they're outside, it's that it's, it's just so obvious to me how hungry people are for interaction with another human being. I, I've never seen people come off so friendly to me, so willing to make eye contact, uh, to wave, to smile, and to have a conversation, of course, you know, from a safe distance. I've, just, I've never seen that before. Matter of fact, we were, <laughs> I just think this is so funny to me, we were walking down this road, uh, and uh, we, we came across this front yard, and there were two grandparents sitting in lawn chairs on their front yard. And in between them uh, was, who I'm guessing was their grandson, it looked like a boy about eight years old, and he was dressed head to toe uh, as Mario, as in the Italian plumber who fights turtles, Mario. And I was so taken back by it that I kind of pointed at him, and I said, hey, our are you Mario? And he ran over and he got his big floppy red Mario hat with the big M on it. And he, he has big, you know, goofy white gloves. And he was just so ecstatic to show off this Mario costume. My kids were going nuts and they were waving and Everett was saying how, you know, Mario is his favorite character and all that kind of stuff. And there was no, like, angle. That was, 
that wasn't the means to an end for they weren't trying to sell me anything. They, they just wanted to be out there and see people and, and talk to people and interact with people. And, and every time I go out now for a walk, I, I keep seeing that. And, and what it reminds me of is just how much I think people generally are learning to, how valuable, we're learning how valuable human relationships really are. And the reason that I bring this up is because that's exactly what I see in Jesus right here. It, it, it dawned on me as I was reading specifically verses 9 and 10 that after Jesus left that empty tomb, he could have just gone back into heaven. There was nothing left for him to do. He completely accomplished the sole reason for which he came, to purchase the salvation for all who would put their trust in him. And the angel had told the two Marys at the tomb what he had done. I mean, angels could have disseminated that message to his disciples and said, hey, Jesus is going to return, tell everybody about what he's done in that tomb. Jesus could have done that, but instead, Jesus decided to personally meet with his disciples to allow them to fall at his feet, to hold on to him, to, to worship him. And he, and he even goes on and he tells them, don't be afraid. And then he, even a step further, he tells them exactly where he's going to be. And the reason that Jesus did that is because he wanted them to meet with him. He wanted them to have an encounter with him. He wanted them to enter into a life-changing relationship with him. And he wants that for you and for me exactly as much as he did for the people in that story. In the end, Christianity does not just offer you facts to analyze or ideas to consider. It offers you a person to meet. And when you understand what all this means, when you understand that God actually became a person named Jesus, who in dying has paid for every one of your sins, and who in rising offers you a kind of hope that nothing in this life can take away, I think when you understand that, you're really only left with two options. You can stay exactly where you are. You can keep doing exactly what you've been doing, or you can do what the people in this story did. And you can go to Jesus, and you can meet with Jesus, and you can put your trust in Jesus, and you can worship Jesus. And the only reason that we can do that is because this Jesus, to this day, is alive and well, and he is available to absolutely anybody who will call on his name. You know, I've, I've actually had the chance to cross exactly one thing off of my bucket list. Uh, I got to baptize people in the Jordan River. It was back in 2015. I went over there with a pretty large group of people for this 12-day tour in and around Israel. And uh, on one of the days, the tour guide took us to the Jordan. And he asked everybody in the group if they wanted to get baptized. And then he asked me if I would help do the baptisms. And so I, I got to baptize uh, one of my best friends who was in that group with me um, right there in the Jordan River. I, I got to baptize a number of people from my group. Um, and I even got to baptize people who weren't a part of my group that I'd never seen before and probably won't ever see on this side of eternity again. They just saw what we were doing and wanted in on it. And, you know, they're, they're, they're crying as they make this decision to give their life to Jesus. And it, it, was a, it was an amazing experience. It's something that I know I'm never going to forget. But as I reflect on that memory, what surprises me so much about it is that what stands out to me about that memory is, is not the baptisms themselves so much as it was the setting in which the baptisms took place. See, the section of, of the Jordan River that we were in was only about maybe 30 feet across. 
and the bank that, that I entered from, that bank had standing on it a number of Israeli soldiers dressed in full military uniform, uh, rifles in hand, finger on the trigger, ready for you to give them a reason. And then just 30 feet across from the bank they were standing on, on the opposite bank were Jordanian soldiers. And they were dressed head to toe in their military uniform. And sure enough, they had rifles in hand, fingers on the trigger, ready for somebody to give them a reason. It was actually a, a pretty tense situation that, you know, growing up in America is just not something that I was totally accustomed to or even ready for. But, but try to picture this. There we were right in the middle of all that, baptizing people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And as I reflected on that, that picture, that scene, the more that I, I couldn't help but think that, man, that is the perfect picture of what Christianity really is all about. Christianity is a measure of peace in the midst of a war zone. Christianity is an interruption to the normal way that this broken world operates. It's a declaration that one day through Jesus... Everything about this world is going to be fixed and made whole and set right. Everything that sin has torn down is going to be restored by God because of what Jesus did on that first Easter morning. But more than anything else, Christianity is an invitation to be a part of what God is doing in this world right here and right now. It's an invitation for you to give your life to the Savior who gave his life for you so that you could have new life. In his name. And if you haven't made that decision yet, if there's any doubt in your mind of whether or not you have peace with God, I, I cannot think of a better time for you to make that decision than right here and right now. All it takes is for you to call out to Jesus and ask him to save you and trust him that he will. And b- before I'm done today, I-, I just wanted to circle back to that statement that I read from the Surgeon General at the front end of this talk. Maybe the servant, Surgeon General was right. You know, maybe, maybe as you listen to this, maybe what he said this week was going to be like, maybe that's what this week was like for you. Maybe, maybe this past week was the hardest and the saddest week for so many. Or maybe, maybe he was wrong. Maybe the weeks ahead are going to be like that. I, I don't know. I don't think anybody really knows. But what I do know is that absolutely nothing that happens in this world can take away from the message that I delivered to you this morning. Because the darker that this world gets, the more brightly this message shines. And the more bitter this life gets, the sweeter this message becomes. And the brokenness of this world, which is absolutely broken, it just makes this message appear that much more beautiful. See, what Easter reminds us of, if ever we doubt, is that death ends in life. And what looked like defeat ended in victory. And crucifixion ended in resurrection. That's what it did for Jesus and and it's what it will surely do for every single person who will put their trust in his name. And and, and so I I just want to leave you with this. The promise that Easter offers every single one of us, every single one of you on the other side of this screen right now, the promise that Easter offers us is that for everyone who will put their trust in Jesus is that in the end, 
it's going to be all right. What that means for us living on this side of eternity is that if it's not all right, well, then it's not the end. Whatever you're going through, whatever brought you to this place, I hope you have an amazing Easter. I know this isn't the Easter that we expected, but it's the Easter God's walking us through. And I believe that because he's walking us through this, people are going to experience him in deeper, more meaningful, more life-changing ways. And, and that's what I hope happens for you this Easter. So I love you guys. Stay safe. That's it. And that's all.